0: Missionary hardcore podcast come your way episode number 26 today we're going to be doing another professional bodybuilder this is one this is a guy who's been retired but he's still very very active as a commentator and stuff. foad abiad and um so he's a really really interesting character and um he's actually a pretty cool guy uh when you when you see him talk and uh, and do his thing on the circuit and he he's uh, been doing that. So, very popular Canadian-born Lebanese professional bodybuilder. He retired back in 27 and we're going to get into his retirement. He retired earlier than a lot of guys would because he was still close to, you know, his peak and he was still doing well in competitions, but he retired a little earlier. Than you would have thought. So we're going to get into it in a little bit. It's kind of interesting. But since then, he's built a nice little career, going on podcasts, having his own podcast, commentating, having a media presence on different platforms. He's done. Uh, he does. Uh, he's, he owns supplement company. We'll get into that. And he does live and post bodybuilding shows. So he'll actually during the show he'll actually have a little group he gets together and does it live now bodybuilding of course is not that popular compared to other sports where you get you know millions and millions and millions of people listening but it is cool to have that mobster because you don't see this type of thing in bodybuilding so People who are really into bodybuilding really, really like this guy. So if you're really into bodybuilding and really into following the, the con- contests and competitions, you know who Fouad is uh, from that. So his stats, five foot nine, two 245 competition, 284 in the offseason. <sighs> Look, at the end of the day, one of the top Canadian bodybuilders of his era. And he has a very strong fan base, especially in Canada. And they've nicknamed him Hoss. So, Mobster, anything you want to chime in so far before we get into his early life?
1: Yeah, he comes across as—I'm going to say—thoughtful. Uh, there's not literally the first thing that you know comes out of his mouth because he hasn't engaged his brain. He seems to me to be—I'm going to say—a clever guy, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Right? because there's a bunch of pros out there in the past. Uh, and and some percentage of the pros that exist now, where you know there's a certain path that all of us, myself included, arguably could follow, right? You know, the simple, simple facts of the matter is we're doing a podcast, he's doing a podcast. You know, I've owned a supplement company, he's owned a supplement company. You've been around supplements for donkey years. You know, it's that kind of vibe, right? But uh, there, there's a sort of thoughtful element to what he does. It's not simply trying to come across in a matter of way. It's not just, this is, you know, the path that I'm supposed to follow. There's a certain element of thoughtfulness to it. So, you know, you get the the impression that he would be a great speaker. You get the impression that if you went to a seminar, you would definitely learn something. It isn't just a case of a pro turning up, flexing their muscles and showing you how to do a, a dumbbell curl. You would learn something. And I think what you're learning here is an element of and I think maybe one or two other bodybuilders, Jay Cutler, you could probably include, and that is what I call being a professional. So you know, the other thing I also notice when you when you, when you're watching those podcasts, and I've seen a couple, is there's a an element for me a, of occasion. they have they will have a laugh, but I get the impression that probably off air, he, he's very funny. There's a sort of different uh, an element of buddies with the people that he has on, and you know the. the uh, off-air, they're having a and joker. I mean, you've had a couple of these little silly things where we've had last week in the pre-shows, and then as soon as we do the podcast, we are 100% serious because it's a serious thing to do. I think that's how Fuad comes across. He has his shit together, he's educated, he's thoughtful, uh, and he's definitely a pro's pro in that particular regard. Something else, I mean, you've already touched on the supplement company. I mentioned this, Steve in the pre-show. His company's sponsoring what we've just done a podcast on, which is the next potential... Mr. Olympia, in the case of Samson, do So he's definitely got his finger on the pulse, Steve. I, I think he said he'd be a very cool person to do business with, to talk to in person. And, yeah, I think he comes across in that particular way, Steve, that, you know, there's a lot going on in the background that you're not seeing. And he, he's, he's definitely a thinking man's uh, thoughtful person. Sure. Back to you.
0: Yeah, and, and but let's let's face the facts. You know, bodybuilding is kind of boring, and he makes it fun. It's just like baseball, especially the way baseball was before they changed the rule where, you know, there's a pitch count now. So it's kind of more less boring, but it's still fucking boring. But, like, a fun baseball commentator knows how to, like, shoot the shit during the game to kind of fill in the gaps of time. And bodybuilding can be the same way. You go to a bodybuilding show, and it's boring. You know, uh, most of it is boring until
1: you get to the big boys toward the end. Mobster? yeah. Do you know what on on this subject, Stephen? This is a thing, right? If you, I've actually said this in a recent show. If we watch how a person trains. And I'm thinking just for example, you know, bench press. I love bench press, Steve, but it's literally weight off a rack, weight to chest, weight back on the rack, right? And there's only so many of those kind of videos that I can watch. I love the freaks, right? And I'm inspired as I was when I was a teenager and now by the freaks. But there's only so much of that. Even someone that absolutely explained that every single nuance, you'd only want to watch that video once or twice as a reminder. And then after that, you're watching people move the bar from A to B, right? So, for example, in powerlifting, your limit of excitement is seeing someone break a record or someone break the all-time record, some great big, heavy super super heavy pro. You know, you're not... It's difficult to, after a, a, a while, and regardless of how passionate you are about the sport, and you and I are fantastically passionate, again, the reason why we do this podcast, but it's super difficult to make that, interesting or exciting, and especially if you've been around the game as long as we have and as long as few had us. So you have to – probably the, the thing that someone needs to bring to the table, whether it's baseball or weightlifting, powerlifting or bodybuilding, is that element of passion and that element of, listen, guys, we're sharing this experience. Every single one of us has been under the bar. Every single one of us has sweated. Every single one of us wants to get big and muscular. And that's what you need to bring to the table. And then, like I said, there's an element for me when I've watched his videos, when he's done these podcasts, of the are, guys are having fun. They'll they'll be serious about what they need to be serious about, but they'll have a laugh too. And you get a, a great interviewer, and I think he is one of those people that touches upon that. He's able to get those little idiosyncrasies, those little stories, the little sort of background stuff out of his uh, uh, other podcast members and bring that to the table and that's what makes it interesting because otherwise it's you know big legs big arms big chest who's going to win and that would be a very short uh live show for 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 sure you'd just literally be waiting for the title to come up you right yeah and i i
0: you know listening to him he's actually way more engaging and interesting than the guests he has on I, on it. so he definitely has a gift for this so we'll see if he kind of um moves his way up in this and becomes one of the bigger uh, commentators so early life, born in 1970 in Windsor, Ontario, the Lebanese parents, Fuad grew up like many pro bodybuilders. He was a skinny ectomorph. When he started lifting weights and he started eating, that's when he started blowing up. By the time he was later in high school, he played a lot of sports. He was a fast, agile kid. But then later in his teen years, he started to play football. He gained an absurd amount of weight. And he got up to over 225 pounds. So we see this a lot with skinnier guys. They, you know, all their life they're skinny, and um, and then they start eating. And again, it's kind of like small man syndrome. He's only five foot nine. Only I think in Canada, well, I know in Canada you have a lot more taller people. Um, you've got a lot of, you know, old, you know, it's like the British um, in Ontario. It's a lot of Brits. British ancestry, German ancestry. They're much taller than five foot nine, usually mobster. So you want to get bigger. You want to get wider. And that's what happened here. And he was able, once he started lifting weights and eating, to really blow up and become huge. And that's what happens in these situations. But in the process, he got chubby. So we're going to get into his nutrition later Because I dug a lot into his nutrition, and we're going to talk about that in in a second. Be really, really, really neutral on that. Early 20s is when he fell in love with the sport of bodybuilding. His first show he attended as a spectator was a Toronto Pro, and he was blown away at what the human body was capable of achieving. This led him to start to dream about one day being a a pro himself and being on that stage at the Toronto Pro. And as, as you can probably figure out, he ended up being on stage. And we're gonna get into this competition uh history late in, the, in, in just here in a second. So here's the thing though, Mobster, um, who's I believe you did the same thing to make ends meet, you know, once you start getting into bodybuilding, he had to do what he had to do. So being a big dude, five foot nine, two hundred twenty-some pounds, he was a big dude. He's a big strong dude, right? So being a bouncer, he only got about minimum wage. That's not very much, okay, especially for Canadian standards. And uh, so what he did, he would hustle on the side and make some extra money at the door, sneaking people in and doing other hustling. You know, I'm sure, mobster, you know what they do. There's, You got to make some hustling. They, they, they give you minimum wage, and from there, you want to make extra money. You got to do it doing some other things kind of under the table to, to do that. So you did some bouncing, right, mobster?
1: Oh, super briefly, Steve. I've only ever done it maybe two, three times in my life for one or two nights. Uh, ever. I've been asked a bunch of times. And I think even uh, the, one of my previous jobs, there was a great suggestion that I should become a police officer because of my demeanour. And of course, you know, my size and my weight, especially now. But even back in the day when I was being 240, 250, 260 at most, my heart six foot three. But ultimately, Steve, I was always of the, if I go in there in the evening, uh, I want to be able to sit down, chill out, have a drink, socialize, and whatever else. The idea that I've got to be around drugs and it's like one o'clock in the morning and they're paying me minimum wage was like, hell no. I've literally only done it a couple of times in my life as a, a, a favor. And funny enough, I've actually qualified because we licensed in this country. To do it, uh, the, the security industry, SIA, you have to get. A, a, I've done all of that and, funny enough, a, and passed the test absolutely no problem, but never went as far as uh, purchasing the license. And again, it's one of those things. I've visited a perception of how I look and walk and, and, and respond to people and whatever else and saying, oh, you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. So definitely people think I should do it, and definitely think I do do it, but I don't. I've honestly literally only done it maybe a handful of times. But that, that the point that you just made is it's the same in this country, Steve. And I can think of two or three very capable people who do do that kind of work. And pre-COVID, the wages were fucking awful. If you say minimum wage in, the, in Canada, it was a little bit more than minimum wage here. Uh, and I'm thinking ex-army, uh, a couple of them, PTs, trainers, coaches in the army, in the military, and then they've got off and got qualified, and then they've done like 10 years on the doors, as you, as as, as, the, as the job title sometimes is called here in the in UK. And then to just be told, you know, it's 11 or £12 pounds an hour? No, absolutely not. So they've actually refused to the point where they've made a name for themselves and they demand more money, but they are but two or three people I can think of, super, super capable. I can imagine in this situation, you need to be able to meet and greet. You need to be able to deal with bullshit. And then, of course, when when the time comes, you need to be hands-on. And, yeah, so it, there's a certain personality type that seems to enjoy it the most. Money-wise, I can completely understand the side hustle. I really can. Um, that's actually been a huge issue in the industry with regards, for example, letting drug dealers in, or people slipping you a few duck bucks to to let them in when they shouldn't really be in that kind of thing. I get it. I understand it. Because, again, you're you're paying people the least amount of money you possibly can. And ultimately, at some point, not every single time, not every single night that you work the door, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be glasses and bottles and chairs and punch-ups and whatever else. And a minimum wage just doesn't cover that bullshit. It really doesn't. So, yes, I get it. I absolutely understand it. But obviously, and I, and I know people, as you say here, the situation of bodybuilders making ends meet. They get the train when they want the train. They get to go out and eat whenever they want to, and then they get to work for four or five hours of the night time, work in the club, work in the bar, whatever. It's understandable, and that's why a huge, great percentage of our industry does something like that. But equally, as you and I have discussed on other shows, uh, the profile now of PED users and bodybuilders to a lesser degree, is uh, more educated. And so sometimes it's a choice because it's an easy. It's considered to be an easy job. But in reality, it's not. <laughs> when you've got to search people for drugs, when you've got to hustle people out, when they're actually in full-blown proper fights and God knows what, I was going in some crazy clubs, then you're earning every single penny. I mean, minimum wage doesn't begin to cut it. So I get it. I completely understand why there might have been a side hustle there, Steve. But you.
0: All right, yes, yeah, so let's start his competition history. Why don't you start it off next? Talk a little bit about his, uh, how he got into it.
1: Yes, yeah, Steve. So, um, two seconds. Winning his pro card in 2006 at the CBBF, that's the Canadian National Championships, and Saskatchewan, I believe. <laughs> that's my mispronunciation. By winning the competition later in that year competing in his first ever show as a pro and getting a modest 15th in the 2006 IFBB Atlantic City Pro. That's probably a good indication of the difference between amateur and professional.
0: All right. So you to, uh, yeah. So next, uh, ne- next year, he improved on his standing. He finished eighth at the 2007 IFBB Atlantic City Pro and fifth at the 2007 IFBB Montreal Pro. And then in 2008, he got 17th place at the Mr. Olympia. So, look, that's not bad. You know, and if you're 17th place at the Mr. Olympia, that means you're the 17th best bodybuilder in the world. I mean, so I I, I, I think that's impressive. Um, you know, getting top 10 at Mr. Olympia is hard as hell. Getting top five is downright impossible. Getting top two in top at Mr. Olympia, that makes you the champion. So he also got third place at the IFED Europa Super Show that year. Uh, 2011, he earned third at the IFBB Flex Pro and 12th at the Arnold Classic. And then the next year, he improved to 11th at the Arnold Classic. In 2013, he finished second to Victor Martinez at the 2013 IFBB Toronto Pro and 10th at the Arnold Classic. And that's not an easy competition. Neither of them are easy competitions, really, especially the Arnold Classic. So getting top 10 at the Arnold Classic is a great, great accomplishment. At the Europa Super Show of 2014, he finished behind Branch Warren for second place. At the Europa Super Show of 2014, he finished behind Branch Warren for second place. That was another great showing. Finally, in 2015, he had two impressive wins. He won the IFBB Europa Super Show, and he won the IFBB Vancouver Pro. Not easy competitions. He also finished second place just behind Max Charles at the IFBB Tampa Pro. So, look, he showed that he was capable of doing a lot of amazing things. So his final two major competitions, the IFBB Toronto Pro in 2016, he earned third place. And the Arnold Classic the next year where he got sixth. So, again, those are two really tough competitions, Mobster. And he was able to, to place pretty, pretty high. So um,
1: <clears throat> I don't know if you want to comment on that uh, before yeah. we talk about his retirement. Yeah, so here's the thing uh, for our listeners. For some of our listeners, a percentage of our listeners who could decide to compete, becoming a pro is sometimes a thing in and of itself, Steve. To get that pro card is like the dream. And in fact, we've got some great members on our forums competing right now that are hunting for the pro card. So it's like getting another trophy, but there's a great deal of difference between winning a pro card, and it's a very small percentage of people that do, and being what I would call a professional bodybuilder. What do I mean by that? In, 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 in you, there's probably, in the UIB NPC, there's probably a thousand or so uh, men, never mind uh, the other classes, in the open-class men that have won, in some competition, a pro card. And I believe, Steve, it was $100. I think it's something like $250 now, there or thereabouts. Per year to renew your pro card, and some people do that. You will see on Instagram many of that thousand bodybuilders uh, with the ifb pro, and I've been against again across multiple classes. But in reality, there's probably a hundred that you and I would recognise and call them professional bodybuilders that were making something like a living and competing at a high enough level for us to recognise them as pros. Fuad is in that group. He's in that group because of some of the titles and places you've just heard Steve talk about. But the rest (laughs) it's like having the pro card is not something that's going to cause an awful lot of people to give up their day jobs to, they won't be paid enough by the trophies and winnings and the titles and the cash and whatever and even to some small degree the sponsorships and whatever else to, to make a Reasonable living from it So Fuad is in an elite group Steve and I have touched on this on other shows before Essentially there's probably 100 maybe a little bit more Steve that are out there In that group that are, are making a mark That have something like a legend That will have some kind of Im, 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 uh, uh, Impression on the history of the Iron Game Fuad is in that very Small group of maybe 100 right now and maybe two or 300 like ever Steve that you and I would recognize. I've got a million magazines, thousands of magazines for sure upstairs. And the person, people were big at the time that they won the competition and you'd have, I'd have to go look them up now. Fuad is not going to be one of those guys. He's going to be someone that you and I will recognize 10 or 15 years down the road. Back to you.
0: So let's talk about his retirement. So um, his fans were very upset when he announced his retirement after the Arnold Classic. And uh, look, he talked about several reasons why he decided to retire. Uh, the two main ones were business and health reasons. And look, on the business side, I don't know, I'll let Mobster get into the health side. But on the business side, he wanted to get more involved in promoting supplements and contests. This would earn him far more money, potentially, than traveling around the world competing for trophies and, and small checks. Uh, he also wanted to grow his podcast, earn repping opportunities, and work for on his ownership of Hostile Supplements. So he put out a video talking about his retirement. If you guys take a look at the article, it is linked in there. So and I'll get in let mobster talk about the hit
1: the, the health side of why he decided to retire. Yeah. So any sensible top level professional bodybuilder and competing uh, amateur Steve, and of course you're big on the blood test and arguably not just the numbers of the names and places I've just mentioned, but that's all steroid using bodybuilders, arguably, should be getting blood tests. And we do that for a number of reasons. So basically, Fuad said that he was having multiple blood tests, as he's supposed to, as we've just talked about, and he was getting markers that were bad every single time. And this is, you've got to remember, as a top professional bodybuilder and a competing to become a top professional bodybuilder, He's having his tests, he's taking PEDs, and he's probably not giving himself enough of a break over those times they to consistently get those numbers coming back. And then what also happened around the time coming up to the last show that we tied at, you had George Peterson passing away, then Sean Roden, and of course since then we've had others, and he was seeing blood work again and again and again. he says it wasn't worse than it had been at any other time, but I wasn't happy with it. And in the context of everything else, I pulled the plug. Basically, and we're going to get into the the, the, uh, way that he could make money in terms of uh, his supplement company, Steve, there was an easier route to making money in bodybuilding, and it wasn't going to be on stage. I think we talk about this in the article where, you know, and I, I can think of guys that are still making great money. Now, Jay Cutler would be a great example, Steve, but especially back in the day. And I think, Ronnie Coleman, you're going to get $10,000 a weekend. You could do, you know, 40 or 50 of those weekends a year. That's for $100,000. And then you're talking about the Archibald sponsorships. Jay Cutler was a great example of that. Uh, Even before he was Mr. Olympia, he had 16 companies sponsoring him. Fuad wasn't in that group. And he saw an opportunity to, A, better his health, which is just good old-fashioned common sense, Steve, and, and and doing the right thing. And B, I can put more of this effort that I've been putting into training into my business, and his business has become successful absolutely. As I touched on a the earlier in the podcast, guys, he's now sponsoring someone that we recently did a show on, Samson Douara, and Samson has the potential right now, Steve. As we're recording this podcast just last week, there's a video that's come out of Samson at three hundred and fifty pounds. And still relatively lean, uh, he has. You and I discussed in our podcast whether or not he has the potential to miss Mr. Olympia, and we said yes. He's right up there. And Hostile, Fuad's brand has him as a sponsored athlete. That says to me that Hostile's got his finger on a pulse. It's a successful business, and with Samson as, as as the face of their business as well as Fuad, there's a potential to go above and beyond whatever it is right now, and that is a way to make money outside of competing. Now I get it. I lo- you know I I loved competing back in the day, but there comes a time when you have to stop either A because your placements are dropping off or B as in thread's case, especially in professional bodybuilding, it's just not about your health anymore and, and and you're not rolling the dice anymore. Plus I think we've discussed this online Steve on the forums will be saying you get to a certain age And the dice that you were happy to roll before, you're no longer happy to roll. And I think Fuad saw that. I think he maybe realised he was never going to be Mr. Olympia. And he'd see people that he knew, that he he was buddies with, dropping by the wayside when they shouldn't have done, and said, you know what? Not for me. Not for me. I can do something different. And arguably, Steve, I'm going to say better. Not just because he was a good pro, great pro. I said top 100. But now he's making his name probably bigger than he ever did before, Steve, just in himself doing the podcast, doing the videos. The company's doing very well. And like I'm saying, he's sponsoring one of the best athletes that's out there right now, someone who has the potential to go above and beyond anything Fuad does. So I think I can see a great potential in the future. But, yeah, talk about what it would mean for you if you was in the same situation and you're seeing those markers come up, Steve, because you're a big guy on the blood test. Ultimately, you have to make that kind of decision.
0: Look, it hits you a lot harder when you know these guys. It's one thing to just sit at home and, you know, be have an Instagram account and follow bodybuilding and love bodybuilding and watch the interviews and be a fan. Right. It's another thing to actually know these people in person, to interview these people, to hang out with these people, have dinner with these people. Sean Roden, George Peterson, John Meadows. He was friends with all these guys. Um, he's a likable guy. And, and you know, he he also friend with Ian, uh, who we talked about on a previous uh, hardcore podcast. And. Look, at the end of the day, when you see these people who are your friends, who are your, you know, who you talk to all the time, who uh, at the end of the day, you know, you're watching this. This is real life shit. And it's kind of, it, it hurts. It's shocking to see people like the people I work with on the forum, mobster. If something happened to you guys, it would hit me a lot harder because I talk to you guys. We do the podcast together. It would be like, wow, this is serious. And it would make me think twice About what I was doing. At the end of the day, he also loves his mother. We're going to get into that also in a little bit when we uh, go over his nutrition. He does videos with his mom. And, you know, to leave your mom, uh, to put your mom in a situation where she has to bury you. That's the worst thing you could do for yourself, guys. Listen to me on that one. Do not die before your parents die. After your parents die... Then do whatever the fuck you want. go skydiving, go um, you know, go do do whatever the hell you want. Eat shit, do drugs, do whatever you want. That's fine. But when your parents are alive, don't make your parents bury you. That's I've seen people. I've had friends who have children that have died. They're never the same. and that it's something that you will never be the same after that. We see that um with wars. Um, you know, mothers who have, who are crying, you know, when their ch- children die in war, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, um, you know, to see that. And uh, so you cannot do that to your parents. And I think that's what his love for his mom really led him to do that. And also another thing, let me just uh, talk about blood work for a second, Momster. What are the things that he could have saw in his blood work specifically that had him concerned? To me, it's the cholesterol Your your total cholesterol levels over 200 consistently for years and years and years. That's going to happen when you are that big and you're running anabolic steroids and abusing anabolic steroids, which you have to do to place at these competitions. It's going to push your total cholesterol levels sky high. It's going to push your good cholesterol levels down. It's going to push your bad cholesterol sky high heart uh, bl- blood pressure you could take medication okay but the problem when you start taking medication for your heart cholesterol meds blood pressure medications now you're adding more medications to cover up other things it's a domino effect it can have effect on your mental health it can affect on other stuff so you know also kidneys his liver the kidney values blood urine urea nitrogen b-u-n Creatinine levels, those are going to be high when you're holding so much muscle and you're running anabolic steroids and abusing anabolic steroids. That's going to be high for years and years and years and years. Okay? That's just the way it works. You're also in the gym. You're grinding in the gym. You're taking all these supplements. It's going to be high. That's normal for a bodybuilder, but it's not a good thing because it's really causing your kidneys to have to do a lot more work and overwhelm them. Same thing with your liver. Your liver is going to get overwhelmed. It's going to have a domino effect on everything in your body. So if your organs, your heart, your kidney, your liver aren't functioning optimally because they are having to do so much work, it's going to affect everything else in your body. All right. So no doubt he started noticing he was having trouble sleeping. He was having trouble with energy. He was fatigued all the time. He was getting, you know, like different issues when it comes to being dizzy and, just was not able to live a quality lifestyle and that's an issue and um you know at the end of the day he's got to make that decision where you know what enough is enough and i agree with you lobster he realized look i'm not i've i've won two competitions two major competitions that he won all right you know what what else does he have to prove what's the next step from there pretty much mr olympia getting a top 10 top 5 top three, finishing the Mr. Olympia. And he realized, you know what? It's just not going to happen. My genetics are just a hair below these other guys. Maybe also my nutrition is a hair below these other guys. We'll get his his nutrition, which definitely was not the most optimal Um, in, in, in a second. But look, that, that's that's really what ended up happening here. And I completely get it, mobster. It's definitely yeah. a reality check. And when you keep your, your head in the sand, like a lot of these guys do, and um, and look, I, I interviewed Boston Lloyd Two, three times on my previous podcast You guys can, can, can dig into those I've done thousands of podcasts But you can dig into that one I talked to Boston outside the podcast um, About this stuff And he told me straight up He's like, Steve I don't get my blood work Because I don't want to know no. And he kept his head in the sand And he died at a very young age Fouad, on the other hand wanted to know and when he got the blood work done he said oh my gosh this is not plausible i'm gonna die at 45 or 50 years old and i don't want to die at 50 years old so he was like you know what let me just get away from this this is not a safe sport bodybuilding is not safe sport and look you don't have to compete to still look good he still looks good to this day i mean you look at him in yep. the pot in this podcast or whatever, you could tell this dude is he's a big dude. So, yeah, he's he's you know, there was no reason to just, just kill yourself over a trophy. So, that's pretty much sums it up, Mopsa. go ahead. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Something you said, and that portion there, Steve, I think touches home, right? So, for example, you mentioned Boston, I believe he was 35. Uh, which is no age at all. I've had a few buddies that have trained, funny enough, not relating to PEDs that have passed away. I did a post just this weekend on the forums about, you know, looking good, feeling good because we train, because we eat clean, uh, because they lifestyle is for the most part outside of PEDs quite healthy. And, you know, uh, I used myself as an example, saying that I've lost two brothers, one to recreational drug use, the wear and tear, although he'd stopped. By the time he passed away, he still passed away. One more alcohol-related, uh, and yet I'm the eldest of four brothers. You know? so, and you, something you said as well, which I think was a very uh, in, interesting point, if it happens, we will probably be blown away, you and I, if one of the guys that we call one of our regulars, one of our team, one of the reps, one of the other moderators, falls down dead because of PD use, because of training, because they were ignoring health signs and whatever else, and it will have a massive impact on the forums touch wood. so far today at least in my experience Eva. hopefully you haven't had it as well yet um we haven't had that happen and maybe because you and i are big on the blood test and sensible use and this is the same thing for the thing so here's the thing guys takeaway lesson just from this portion of the podcast is that a top professional bodybuilder saw what they didn't want to see and decided enough was enough it just wasn't worth them pushing the envelope in that regards and arguably as i said a few minutes ago is actually the better for it because the impact they're having on the sport in a different way and, arguably, successfully in their own life as well. They've actually done probably better not being a top professional bodybuilder because of the supplement, because of the company, because of the podcast, and because of the impact they're having on the rest of the sport as a whole than they would have had as a top professional bodybuilder, arguably, even maybe, you know, Mr. Arnold or Olympia winning uh, bodybuilder. They've actually done a, taken a slightly different path, and I'm saying probably more successful in that particular regards. I'll jump back in now on, on the training, Steve, and something I've very briefly touched on and appreciated with Steve in terms of the training. Uh, I'll read from the article and then I'll comment. So it says that the style is interesting and believes in not worrying about your next set. Rather, you should focus on the set you're doing right now. Now, you can, we've got links to videos. You can watch him doing a back workout, Uh, The straight sets, four sets at a time with the weight being the same. So here's something that I spoke about with Steve in a pre-show and funny enough I touched on this briefly in a podcast not that long ago. So occasionally, and I'm less of a straight set guy, I'm more of a pyramid set guy. So I might have three sets, four sets and ultimately the top set, the last set will be absolutely the heaviest I could possibly manage. Right, so let me give you an example of what Fuad's getting at and I'll use myself as an example again, skull crushes, Steve. I'm trying right now, in fact, I'm succeeding right now, with repping £180 on the Easy Bar and skull crushes. But, Steve, it is goddamn heavy. And that just means heavy, full stop. It feels heavy. It feels hard. So the mental process that I use, which I think is what Fuad's getting at, is, is it feels goddamn heavy when I'm doing it. But how long am I actually doing that set for? 30 seconds 45 seconds if you're doing a straight bodybuilding set guys and i'm more of a weight listener, your set should be anywhere between 45 seconds at about one minute 15 one minute 30 as a maxi perhaps 15 12 15 reps and that's if you're slowing the reps you're keeping the pace nice you're, you're, you're accentuating the negative and so on that's a minute and a half maximum really and it it's brutal that slowing down the rep with a moderate weight can feel unbelievably difficult. I know for a fact that an awful lot of guys aren't quite getting into that particular place mentally and or physically because it is difficult as all hell. So what Fuad says, and I agree with, is you have to have that process in your mind that it is a fraction of a moment of the whole day and it is a fraction of a moment of the whole week or the month or the year or your life. Literally, you are only stressing, in my case, with the skull crushers once a fortnight for at the absolute max T45 seconds once every two weeks. So as God awful as it feels when I'm doing it, and as God awful the anticipation is going to be of me about to do it, I can persuade myself that I will moan like a bitch once it's done, huff and puff, Steve, drag my ass off the floor because I'm doing it, laying on the floor when I'm doing it, get up, flex my triceps, and two minutes later, I'm fine. Hell, most times when I do arm days, I'm doing a podcast with Steve straight after. So within, you know, five, ten minutes of the workout finishing, I'm sitting here doing a podcast like I'm doing right now with Steve. Legs this morning. God awful, Steve. God awful. And here we are, chatting away. Do I sound like I'm dying? No. So there's an argument to be made, and I think Red does it very well of thinking if you want to get to Fuad's position in life, you want to be a top-level professional bodybuilder, or weightlifter, or powerlifter, or arm wrestler, whatever, you need to put yourself physically and mentally in a place where it's awful, but in a good way, for a moment. And just push into that crazy, fucked up, need to get this done kind of place. Put your muscle under crazy, crazy stress. Make it grow. Make it harden. Make it get stronger. And realize it is literally the pain, the discomfort, the, oh, my God, that's heavy, is for a moment. And in his case, with the four straight sets, Steve, you recover, 60 seconds, you're ready to go again. And again, you're only doing total is four minutes training if you do those four straight sets and then 90 seconds each out of a day, out of an hour. So, yeah, guys, be uncomfortable. Go there. Do what Fuad does and think like Fuad and grow and get strong and get more muscular. Absolutely, Steve. What do you think on that before we talk about nutrition?
0: Yeah, definitely. You guys can watch his videos, and he does a lot of workouts during his videos. Um and it's kind of cool to to watch. He's got a lot on, on YouTube, a lot of uh, training videos he does. And he trains with some of the other can, his buddies up there in Canada. And they do some, uh, some some workouts together. So it's definitely a good watch for sure. So let's get into his nutrition. So he does a video, uh, one of his most uh, popular videos with millions and millions of views is where he goes budget grocery shopping. And he talks about this because, as we mentioned earlier, he when he saw when he first got into bodybuilding, he had to budget shop um, because he was working as a bouncer and he didn't get paid much. And some nights, you know, he wouldn't make that much cash under the table. So this is what he does. Uh, Bananas, potatoes, oatmeal, rice, box, pasta, ground meats, olive oil, canned fish, frozen vegetables, condiments and drumsticks. And look, with potatoes, potatoes are really easy to make. Um, you can make them one of two ways. The, the best way to make them is just pop them in the oven for an hour. And when you pop them in the oven for an hour, they come out so freaking good. Um, you could put some, um, coconut oil on the outside of it. It makes the skin nice and crispy. And it's a really, really easy way to get in some, uh, some good carbs and some good nutrition from those potatoes. And they're cheap as hell to buy. Um, I think yesterday I bought like seven potatoes, mobster. They were organic potatoes and they only cost me like three, three, three fifty, 50, I think. So they're really, really cheap. I mean, we're talking 50 cents a potato here. So it's really, really cheap. Um, you know, and then bananas are always cheap. I think bananas cost like 89 cents a pound. Uh, they're, they're always, uh, they're always cheap. A dollar a pound, even for organic bananas and then ground meat, you can go, you know, to the grocery store and just watch for sales. Uh, a lot of times they have sales on ground beef uh, for uh, like six dollars a pound, and you can just buy a pound of it, and that will last you like two three days. Uh, uh, so uh, you can make burgers out of it. You can make a a, a burger. It's like you get a pound of ground beef, mobster. You can cut it up into three pieces. Now you got a third of a pound of of a burger right there. So. I mean, these are cheap, cheap ways that you can get in uh, meals. And then the raw oatmeal, he gets the raw oatmeal, the big thing of raw, raw oats, try to get raw organic oats, guys. And, you know, that's not expensive. It costs you a few bucks, but that will last you like weeks, you know? So these are, these are simple ways. I like that he puts that together because it shows you that you don't have to be rich to, uh, to get in, you know, decent food um so another uh clickbait video he did this was interesting where he ate twenty thousand calories in a day and i don't know if mobster you want to comment on that
1: yeah (laughs) so steve and i have talked about this before it's kind of fucked up steve in that some of the most watched videos of and i'm thinking of strength athlete buddies of mine that have done this uh eating a hundred ounce piece of meat, uh, and if you ate it in a certain period of time, you, you won the value of the meal, which was about 75 or £100. Pounds. So about 110 115 $120. Dollars. Uh, and him and his buddy went there, and they got probably more views for that than any other video, competing, training, commenting on the strongman competition video he's ever done. And you and I have talked about Carly Muscle doing something like this. Carly's actually changed his tune very recently, and perhaps we'll do a podcast that in the future. But Carly used to go to different um, fast food joints and literally try to eat every single thing on the menu. And again, he was getting thousands of views for that very, very quickly over perhaps him going to the gym and fooling around and putting together stuff for that and, and going to goals and whatever. So it's crazy and fucks up that these, I think it's one of those, because you're looking at a muscular freak, you're looking at a strength freak. And they imagine, Steve, that we can eat his great meals. I, 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 one of the nicknames a girlfriend had for me was Desperate Dan, who was a comic book character. And it was the old joke that we used to have in the United Kingdom, Steve, where we say, he eats so much food, when it comes to beef, he would just wipe the cow's ass, cut the horns off and have it stuck in a pie. And this is what Desperate Dan would do. He'd have a cow pie, his great big table-filling pie that he would eat, which was full of beef. And so she thought that was what I looked like and how I ate, and in reality, while I do eat a, a little bit more than average, I'm not just eating the whole fucking cow, Steve. So it's kind of fucked up. Ed, entertaining, perhaps, but kind of fucked up that people think that we're having 12, 15, 20,000 calories a day. Can we? Could he? Yes. But it's not something we do all the time. In reality, five, 6,000, in my case, probably nearer to 4,000, Steve. I don't have to eat huge amounts. Uh, I still eat a little bit more than most. Steve eats a lot cleaner. Steve fasts more than me. So he's more muscular than I am. He's showing abs all year round. And Fu had probably still got a six pack going on, Steve, but he had more hits for uh, for, for eating 20,000 calories a day. In fact, Steve posts a comment in the article saying, halfway through the video, his mum stops, pleads for him to stop. And he says, Sorry, mum, I've got 10,000 calories to go. Steve, you know, we could eat jelly and ice cream. And trifles and cakes and cheesecakes, and we could probably hit 12,000 calories easy. 20,000, I think I'd absolutely be pushing it myself. Uh, 6,000, 7,000, no problem. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of fucked up because to be a top professional bodybuilder, that's not what we do. To be a top professional strength athlete, that's not what you do. All of the people I can think of very rarely went much above six, 7,000 calories a day, occasionally a little bit more. And nine times out of 10, when they did it, Steve, the camera came out and, and they filmed it. So, yeah, the reality of the situation is, and we do this with uh, articles and we do this with when we're doing the logs of uh, dieting members that are looking to get in shape and whatever else, nine times out of 10, we're looking for clean carbs, cl- uh, moderate fats, high protein, uh, good fibre, and veggies and stuff like that in your diet, and fresh juices and fruit rather than cheesecakes. And if it fits your macros, and put in 12, 15, 20,000 calories away, it makes Ross an entertaining video. But it's kind of weird that it gets the most views, Steve, rather than proper educational, interesting, factual stuff that would actually benefit you as an athlete. So the reality is, you can watch what he does here, but he's having the same food that he's talked about earlier on, Steve when he's gone out and gone on and showed you that you can eat economically. And what is he eating, guys? He's eating the goddamn same food you are. Chicken, rice, tuna, fresh veggies, good fruits. He's not really eating 20,000 calories a day. I find it strange, Steve. What's your thoughts on that subject?
0: Yeah, and look, at the end of the day, like you said, buddy, it's it's all about clickbait. It's something fun uh, to do. Um, He definitely likes food, and um, he definitely has that you know thing about where food is something he really indulges in and this is something that i don't teach to people so i think this is one of the reasons why he wasn't able to get top five mr Olympia. just not disciplined enough um when it comes to the food he does have that if it fits your macros kind of mentality where it's all about calories in calories out and um, you know we've touched on this so many times on this podcast. And look, your gut health is extremely important. If you're getting four thousand calories a day, and half of those calories are from junky foods, or even a thousand calories, or even five hundred calories are from junky food, it's not going to do your gut any favor. It's not going to do your organs any favor. It's not going to do your skin any favors. It's not going to do your whole body any favors. So really, what separates bodybuilders or guys on the beach or whatever? I'm in my forties and I have a six pack year round, tight waist. What separates me from anyone else out there who's in their mid forties that have, have a gut. What separates is I don't put garbage in my body. I I don't, I treat my body like a, like a sports car. You wouldn't get a Lamborghini and spend a hundred thousand dollars on a Lamborghini if you're self-made and you work really hard, right. To make your money. And it took you years to save the money properly. And then you spend it on a Lamborghini because that was your dream car ever since you were a kid. And then you're going to go put 87 grade fuel in your Lamborghini or not even 87 grade fuel, or 40 grade fuel or 30 grade fuel in your Lamborghini, which I don't even know exists. (laughs) But I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, of course, you're going to put the top fuel in your Lamborghini that's available, whatever that happens to be. I mean, so, I mean, you've got people driving around with, with 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 luxury cars who only put 93 grade fuel in their car, because if you put anything less, it can screw up your engine. So consider your body an engine. So that's one area where Fouad definitely could have improved over the years. And, um, you know, and, and the thing is, I talked about this a lot because in that video where he's eating 20,000 calories in a day and he gives his mom um, a rub, you know, rubbing a little bit. Because his mom in the video tells him, please, you know, stop, stop this. You know, she's kind of being playful with him. And he's like, sorry, I have to 10,000 calories to go. So he's having fun with his mom. But his mom gen- genuinely cares about his health. That's why she's saying that. So at the end of the day, you know, the fast food, the donuts, the restaurant food, the pasta, the sweets, the Pop-Tarts, all this junk that he's putting in his body. Every time you put junk in your body, you alter your DNA. Um so, so it has an effect short term and immediate term, long term. It's going to have an effect. It's going to have an effect on everything in your body. It's going to basically make you feel like crap. It's going to affect your bowel movements. And, and really at the end of the day, it's going to make you crave those foods in the future. Does that make sense? So the thing is like when it comes to food addictions, if you continue eating the same garbage foods, even as a cheat meal, like once a week, Oh, I'm going to have a cheat meal once a week then guess what? You're going to crave those meals forever. You're never going to stop craving them. But if you stop eating them, you won't want them anymore. So that's one of the reasons why you should be anal about what you put in your body and always put clean food in your body, because then you won't crave the garbage food. You'll crave healthy food. Does that make sense? I can remember I adopted a dog, my officer, and I brought him home. And the first thing I did, I went, to the pet store and I bought all these treats for him. And you know, I never had a dog before. I wanted him to be happy. And I saw something on TV, you know, these bacon strips on TV, you know, the, you know, the dog, you know, it's like big it, big it, big, big, big. I don't know if you've seen that commercial. So I bought him that bacon strips. They're like this fake bacon things. It's shaped as a bacon. I don't even know what the hell was in it. It was like fucking a thousand different ingredients in it. It was like fake food. And I thought he'd be so happy that I got it for him. So I I tried to give him one and he smelled it and he gave me this look like, what the hell is this? And he walked away. And that's when I was like, damn, I was like, look, it's just advertising. They advertise crap on TV to make it look good. Then you go eat it and you get addicted to it and then you're craving it more. It satiates you. Then you want to go back and get it again. That's the only thing behind it. It's just an addiction because there's no way. That you, if you're sitting here listening to this, you're like Steve, but I like eating McDonald's. I like eating Burger King. I like eating Wendy's. I like eating Chick Fil A. It tastes good. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't taste good. It's just that you're addicted to the food, and you it's become a habitual thing. Because I don't crave that food. I find that food disgusting because I I don't eat that food. So it's like I'm addicted to like raw nuts, fruit. I mean, I'm addicted to avocados. I'm addicted to to a nice a nice, uh, some nice bone broth or or some beef. I'm addicted to chicken. I'm addicted to stuff like that. Broccoli, that's what I'm addicted to. I like those foods. Those foods are delicious to me. So this is the area where I disagree with Fouad, where Fouad says, well, you know, calories in, calories out. At the end of the day, you're going to gain weight or, or lose weight. And that is true. Calories in, calories out. But the effects that it has on your body over time makes it really, really not good advice. So that's that's one area where I disagree with him. And this is why a lot of times you shouldn't listen to guys based on how they look when it comes to nutrition, because really yeah. it doesn't mean shit if you look a certain way. Um, even guys in professional football, Chad Johnson, wide receiver, he used to eat cereal, fruity pebbles. You know, he's he was on hard knocks. He's like, oh, I eat fruity pebbles, I eat McDonald's you know, I, I'm I'm fine. Look at me. Well, he what ended up happening to him, he flamed out of the league, <laughs> you know, because his diet is shit. He flamed out of the league. And then another guy like Tom Brady, whose diet is is perfect, he stayed in the league 20-some 20, 20 years.
1: Yeah. So let me jump in here for a, a second difference. here, Steve. So one of the things I've said on previous shows, guys, uh, we've touched on if it fits your macros. I said, look at Dexter Jackson. And I've said this multiple times on different podcasts. Dexter explained it quite succinctly. Steve. He was known as the Blade because of his condition. Even when his condition was off, it was still better than most other people's condition. And he said, if it fit your macros with my genetics, ripped when I started, ripped when I was on the way up, and ripped when I won. Sometimes less ripped, but always ripped compared to everybody else. If if it fit your macros worked. If calories in. Calories out was just a thing. He could have eaten anything, Steve. He could have eaten cheesecake and a protein shake and he would have grown. In reality, he ate clean. He ate clean. He ate the same goddamn foods that we recommended earlier on, the same foods that Fuad actually went out and shopped for that showed it could be done economically. And that's how he became the blade. And that's how he won his Mr. Olympia, by eating cleanly, by eating healthily. And, of course, as we touched upon earlier, and when we talk about momentarily, uh ads are potential stack. Eating clean, eating healthily is gonna help those blood numbers, the bad ones, the cholesterol that Steve touched upon. So guys, make sure that if if the top professional bodybuilders with the greatest genetics on the planet, that tiny, tiny percentage, have to eat clean in order to win competition, Steve, <laughs> excuse me, then so do you. I want to touch on briefly, Steve, as you've said in the article here, he's active on social media. We've talked about his podcast. We've talked about the videos and his training videos, nutritional videos, and specifically the one he does with the guys. And what I like about those ones that he does with Guy Sisterino, Neat Walker, James Holliday, and others, is it's a bunch of buddies sitting down and chewing the fat. I think they've done stuff you know, where they've talked about training, shopping, cars. They've got all that kind of thing. But it's done It's done in an interesting way, and they're enjoying themselves. It's not stilted. It's not structured. It's not scripted. They just seem to be chewing in effect. And ultimately, if you give it time, sometimes there's a bit of bullshit there, Steve. But ultimately, you will learn something from every single podcast. I want to get on to now the nitty-gritty. And bearing in mind, and I'll read this line out to you guys. Fuad had kidney issues, and anabolic steroids no doubt contributed to that. So bear that in mind when we talk about a pro-level stack and how that might have made him look the way that he looked with his genetics, with that training. But ultimately, the stack may have also been responsible for those blood numbers, for those cholesterol issues, for the creatinine issues that Steve touched upon in blood tests. And they were the reason why, as well as buddies of his falling down dead, that he stepped away from being a top professional bodybuilder. I'll jump on the first couple here, Steve. And we're thinking here this is around the time of 2010, which would have been his peak years in the sport as a top professional athlete. A thousand milligrams test prop per week. That's not unusual. And prop is one of the short resters, guys. 1,200 milligrams a week of Trembolone ACE. ACE is a much shorter rester, as we know. And 1,200 milligrams is not to be sniffed at, Steve. I'm pretty sure that I will never, ever go much over 300 milligrams if, if, as and when, in a short while, I, I use Shred. So 1,200 milligrams is definitely pro levels, but there will be a lot of side effects for that, and especially for the majority of our listeners. And then one more, a 1,000 milligrams in amphate per week. Uh, yeah, this is a professional stack, absolutely. I don't think 99% of our listeners would not need to use anything close to that. And you have to remember, and I'll reiterate something we touched upon when we talked about Masteron, you need to be lean. So this is a competition stack where someone is getting lean and is already kind of muscular all year round with abs on display all year round and then hardening up and looking rock hard ready for a competition. Jump in, Steve, with a couple more.
0: Yeah, and look, at the end of the day, the reason test prop is used and Trenace is used, is because they're shorter esters. So that allows you to be flexible with them. So with testosterone propionate, let's say you're on testosterone propionate, you're bloating a little more than you would like, you don't like the kind of watery way it's making your muscles, you could stop using it, it's out of your system in a week and a half. You can't do that if you're running a long ester testosterone. So this is why pros use testosterone propionate, and you sitting at home as a normal joe, you would be better off not using testosterone propany because you don't have a competition coming up. You don't have to look a certain way in eight weeks or 12 weeks. You know what I'm saying? So in your situation, you don't have to worry about being flexible and you know being able to start and stop these shorter esters. So for you, it'd be better to not have to inject so often. Go ahead, mobster. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, guys, we know how entertaining it is to hear about what we think top professional bodybuilders are taking. But the reality is, again, 99% of our listeners are never going to compete, Steve. Uh, I, I could I could probably name some of the guys I used to compete with back in the day who are still kind of active in the game, even if they're not competing, and they're still relatively strong, et cetera, et cetera. The rest have come by the wayside. So the reality of it is we we like to have... The idea that genetic freaks do incredibly well and then the only reason they do incredibly well is because there's amazing stacks. That's not true. They were muscular athletes, etc., etc. before they got started. And they would become more muscular athletes once they got started. And yes, absolutely. As Steve said on other shows, it is chemical warfare. But like we said here, for example, with the short resters, that is perfect for a competition stack versus an out of season stack or a growth stack or, or, or whatever. And again, something I, I've never been a fan of it, Steve. So trust me, when it comes to Esters, I'm nearly always going to use a longer acting Esther purely simply because it's less injections per week. But the, the top pros, and especially competing pro, and more so if they're working with a prep coach, Steve, they need, as Steve says, that flexibility. They need so, oh, you know, I'm holding a little bit of water, pull that out I'm struggling with the trend, the trend sweats, I need my sleep. Let's lower the amount of trend I'm taking, or let's use a longer-acting ester, and so on and so forth. And there will be arguments to be made, Steve, for longer-acting esters in the off-season and much, much shorter esters as you approach a show. And, again, because you can pull things out, you can put other things in, you can deal with, if you get a short-term illness, uh, uh, travel arrangements, uh, food that doesn't suit your stomach, and all these kind of things. And... You know, even upset stomach can cause you to hold water. So you need to drop the water. You, you sort the stomach out. You get the good food. I need to drop that water. I need to look good on the day of the competition. And that's what we're looking at here. So the, the arguments about the shorter actinesters, 100% less frequency of pinning if for, for the longer esters, And it's certainly what our listeners would use. And if you come onto the forums, what we would recommend for you versus what we would talk about for someone like Fuad, Competing at that high, high level, Steve. So again, yeah. um t- Test and For example, can quite often have a bit of a sting in its tail, aka uh, post-injection pain, versus the longer acting, uh, and that can be just as much down to the carrier oils or uh, alcohols as it can the shorter esters themselves. They tend to have a much, much higher, uh, dependent upon the user and on the product, of course, much, much higher chance of uh, post-injection pain, Steve. So yeah, what about the rest here? Uh, yeah. prima bolin. Yeah, sorry, I'll
0: let you do it, Steve. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. So, uh, you know, the prima bolin. You know, this is one that a lot of guys don't really run anymore, but um, a lot of guys run equipoise. But with Fouad, because he is more prone to gaining weight a lot easier, I think prima bolin would have made more sense for him. Uh, twelve hundred fifty milligrams a week. And then Winstral, definite must for all bodybuilders who are pros. 125 milligrams a day, especially closer to get to the competition. Really, really cuts you up and dries you out. Uh, so you look really good. Toronto Ball, very similar, 80 milligrams a day, but less side effects when it comes to your joints. You're going to get more harder. You're going to get more cut on Toronto Ball, So they really, really like it. <coughs> Stacking HGH and insulin. This is one that kind of varies uh, week to week, day to day, to day, um, but a lot of pro bodybuilders to get that huge, they're going to run a lot of HCH and they're going to have to run insulin with it to get that blood sugar back down. So 14 IUs HCH, usually about half as much insulin, seven IUs, we'll go with seven IUs on this one. Clen, 140 micrograms a day of Clen, this is one that they're going to play around with. Side effects get too bad, they're going to have to drop the dose. And then of course, diuretics, especially going into the show, just to dry them out. You don't want to go on stage and look fluffy. And Fouad definitely doesn't have a problem with size, but he, you know, the, his, his weakness is cutting down. And that's for most bodybuilders. We're not trying to give him a hard time. Most bodybuilders are the same way these days. Back in the day, it was much different. Back in the day, guys would start out lean, then go into the competition more trying to put on more muscle. Nowadays it's the opposite. Now putting on muscle and putting on size isn't isn't the problem. It's cutting down that's the problem. So you see, that's kind of what one. So Mopster, Mopster touched on that little phenomenon because Foi definitely had no problem putting on size. He loved eating. Okay. We we've discussed this ad nauseum, but he's he loves food. He loves a lot of questionable food.
1: Go ahead yeah. on that. So, actually, I've touched on this in one of the shows some time ago, and I talked about an Iraqi buddy of mine who I was coaching back in London, and I had him do a food diary, and it was so bullshit, Steve. He had salad for breakfast, salad for lunch, salad for tea, and I said, you're lying. I know what you work. I know what you do for a living. I know your family background, and it's similar to Fuaz in the Persian. What do I mean by Persian? Iraqi, Iranian, uh, Lebanese, Syrian, uh, parts of Turkey and so on and so forth. So here's a problem. Um, social eating, Steve. Uh, so his appetite, as we've already talked about, is going to be good. He's not putting 20,000 calories away on the junk food day can he can't, can't, doesn't have a good appetite. The social eating, and even having his mother come in and nag him during the video is a good indication. So my buddy, with the Iraqi background, I said, I know what you're eating over night time. They're doing the big bowl of food in the middle of the table, Steve. It's like it's like sort of Thanksgiving, if not all the time, very, very close to it. So the evening meal was the whole family. Now, it's structured now in the modern times with what we do, even in Canada for food, is a little bit more flexible. But the family background, that been probably one of the traditions I can see them keeping. And the food can be slightly different spices, slightly different ingredients, but it tends to be more oily. So you have something like a lamb in some sort of oil, uh, breads uh, some good vegetables, some good fruits on the table but there'll be things like chickpea couscous uh, moussaka um, all these kind of things, the Greek type stuff all of those and, and and it's a social situation Steve and you reach in and you're dipping and you're sharing and you're passing food around the table you're not eating a thousand calories Steve you're not having uh, super duper uh, nutritious food my the only tip I gave my buddy was to just have one bowl. And even then, I've got I just got visions of Fuad's mum being exactly the same as my buddy's mum. You're not eating. Is there something to matter? You're going to have that kind of vibe, Steve, especially if you if the worst, perhaps over in Lebanon, perhaps come from a poor background. So now you can afford to eat. Can you imagine the pressure sometimes that people are going to be under in that situation to eat with the family and have the same food as the family, not sitting there eating tuna and lettuce and rice and trying to be a great bodybuilder, the family situation, the upbringing, the background, the guilt trip sometimes associated with food, that can be very, very difficult. Steve talks about the way foods, and I've actually seen documentaries on this, Steve, specifically structured to be, and I quote, Moorish, meaning the ingredients in there, the additives are being added to create you wanting more of what you've just eaten, even if what you just ate was a treat. So in other words they want you to eat more junk food when they've created it to be moorish that's that's especially true of drunk food but even regular ready cooked meals the family situation the the social situation is going to add another level to it and especially as i say the persian background it is sometimes especially in lebanon steve it would be three generations of family all in one big house everybody together it could be eight or nine people at the table right. It's Persian, Persian is not Lebanese at all. Persians, Iran. No. I'm thinking Iran, Iraq, yeah, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So all all of those areas that the the family set up the social eating and the food will have some deviation, especially because he was
0: born in in uh, Canada and his parents yeah. were not. So especially yes. in that
1: situation for a certain culture, I can see the tradition being carried on, Steve. So yeah. and again, like I said, if you if you've come from any country where there was a war, and then come come to the, the America or Canada, uh, your situation's changed. You, you're, you no one's bombing you. We can get food in the supermarket, so you're not having to ration stuff. You're not scraping around to get some flour to for bread. So your, your, your vibe, your, your history, your background is going to make it that you're culturally happy for food. What do you think on that before we go into the disclaimer Steve?
0: Yeah, and food in those cultures is very important. In fact, if you ever go. Um, the same thing in, like, Northern Africa, Morocco, and stuff. I was actually watching a show. Um, it's called Match Me Abroad. I think it's a really funny show where um, Americans go to other countries. And it's so funny to see the the differences in cultures. But anyway, so this American from Mississippi, she wants to meet a Morocco. So she goes to Morocco, and she she meets this guy. He invites her to dinner, and they're sitting around and eating food. And he feeds her this milk it's like unpasteurized milk well in america there is no unpasteurized milk it's all pasteurized unless you go like to the amish farms or something so the unpasteurized milk will smell because you're smelling the bacteria so it's literally fresh unpasteurized milk. and she's smelling it and she's drinking it, and she's like whoa this stuff is completely different than the milk we have in america but literally she has to drink it because it's offered to her And she doesn't want to drink it. And they're all sitting around giving her the side eye. And, um, you know, so it's like when they offer you food, you have to eat it. So that's part of the reason, too, why Fawad, he is a big, big eater. Because in his family, you go to a relative's house for the holidays and you get offered food. You must eat it. It's considered a huge. It's like in America, if you go to shake someone's hand, they don't don't shake your hand. It's a huge insult in America to not shake someone's hand if offered it to you. so it's the same thing so yeah just that's a lesson if you ever date someone who has a middle eastern or um arabic background um that's one of the things you can't be doing so you might want to think twice about going to their holiday dinner unless you're planning. i would stock up on charcoal activated charcoal before you go because you might be eating stuff that you will not (laughs) that won't agree with your stomach but you have to eat
1: it leave room as well leave plenty of room In your belly. So yeah, keep that in mind, guys. Social eating it can be a big pressure, and it can make you break your diet. And uh, there's a certain amount of pressure there. If you've got understanding people around you, it's cool. But that's not always the case. And say culturally can be different. Keep that in mind. Please note, we are not doctors, and opinions are ours. It's our view and based on our experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only. The freedom of speech and the First Amendment.